Chapter Thirty of the Queen's Necklace by Alexander Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Journalist's House. It was the day after the agreement with Monsieur Bermer, and three days after the ball at the opera. In the Rue Montorgueil, at the end of a courtyard, was a high and narrow house. The ground floor was a kind of shop, and here lived a tolerably well-known journalist. The other stories were occupied by quiet people who lived there for cheapness. Monsieur Rateau, the journalist, published his paper weekly. It was issued on the day of which we speak, and when Monsieur Rateau rose at eight o'clock, his servant brought him a copy, still wet from the press. He hastened to peruse it with the care which a tender father bestows on the virtues or failings of his offspring. When he had finished it, Aldegonde, said he to the old woman, this is a capital number. Have you read it? Not yet. My soup is not finished. It is excellent, repeated the journalist. Yes, said she. But do you know what they say of it in the printing office? What? That you will certainly be sent to the Bastille. Hold a gondor replied Rateau calmly. "'Make me a good soup, and do not meddle with literature.' "'Always the same,' said she, "'rash and imprudent. "'I will buy you some buckles with what I make today. "'How many copies have been sold yet?' "'No, and I fear my buckles will be but poor.' Do you remember the number against Monsieur de Broglie? We sold one hundred before ten o'clock. Therefore, this cannot be as good. Do you know the difference, Altagonda? Now, instead of attacking an individual, I attack a body, and instead of a soldier, I attack a queen. The queen? Oh, then there is no fear. The numbers will sell, and I shall have my buckles. Someone rings, said Rateau. The old woman ran to the shop, and returned a minute after, triumphant. One thousand copies, said she. There is an order. In whose name? asked Rateau quickly. I do not know. But I want to know. Run and ask. Oh, there is plenty of time. They cannot count a thousand copies in a minute. Yes, but be quick. Ask the servant. Is it a servant? It is a porter. Well, ask him where he is to take them to. Aldegonde went, and the man replied that he was to take them to the Rue Neuve Saint-Gilles, to the house of the Count de Cogliostro. The journalist jumped with delight, and ran to assist in counting off the numbers. They were not long gone when there was another ring. "'Perhaps that is for another thousand copies,' cried Aldegonde. "'As it is against the Austrian, everyone will join in the chorus.' "'Hush, hush, Aldegonde. Do not speak so loud, but go and see who it is.' Aldegonde opened the door to a man— who asked if he could speak to the editor of the paper. "'What do you want to say to him?' asked Aldegonde rather suspiciously. 
the man rattled some money in his pocket and said i come to pay for the thousand copies sent for by monsieur le comte de cogliostro oh come in a young and handsome man who had advanced just behind him stopped him as he was about to shut the door and followed him in aldegonde ran to her master come said she here is the money for the thousand copies he went directly and the man taking out a small bag paid down one hundred six franc pieces Rateau counted them and gave a receipt smiling graciously on the man and said tell the count de cogliostro that i shall always be at his orders and that i can keep a secret there is no need replied the man monsieur de cogliostro is independent he does not believe in magnetism and wishes to make people laugh at monsieur mesmer that is all good replied another voice we will see if we cannot turn the laugh against monsieur de cogliostro and monsieur Rateau, turning saw before him the young man we mentioned his glance was menacing he had his left hand on the hilt of his sword and a stick in his right what can i do for you sir said Rateau, trembling you are monsieur Rateau? asked the young man yes sir journalist and author of this article said the visitor drawing the new number from his pocket not exactly the author but the publisher said Rateau. very well that comes to the same thing for if you had not the audacity to write it you have had the baseness to give it publicity i say baseness for as i am a gentleman i wish to keep within bounds even with you if i expressed all i think i should say that he who wrote this article is infamous and that he who published it is a villain monsieur said Rateau, growing pale now listen continued the young man you have received one payment in money now you shall have another in caning oh cried Rateau, we will see about that yes we will see said the young man advancing toward him but Rateau was used to these sorts of affairs and knew the conveniences of his own house turning quickly round he gained a door which shut after him and which opened into a passage leading to a gate through which there was an exit into the rue vieux augustin once there he was safe for in this gate the key was always left and he could lock it behind him but this day was an unlucky one for the poor journalist for just as he was about to turn the key he saw coming toward him another young man who in his agitation appeared to him like a perfect hercules he would have retreated but he was now between two fires as his first opponent had by this time discovered him and was advancing upon him monsieur let me pass if you please said Rateau to the young man who guarded the gate monsieur cried the one who followed him stop the fellow i beg do not be afraid monsieur de charny he shall not pass monsieur de tavernay cried charny for it was really he who was the first comer both these young men on reading the article that morning had conceived the same idea because they were animated with the same sentiments and unknown to each other had hastened to put it in practice each however felt a kind of displeasure at seeing the other divining a rival in the man who had the same idea as himself thus it was that with a rather disturbed manner charny had called out 
you monsieur de tavernay even so replied the other in the same way but it seems i am come too late and can only look on unless you will be kind enough to open the gate oh cried Rateau, do you want to murder me gentlemen no said charny we do not want to murder you but first we will ask a few questions then we will see the end you permit me to speak monsieur de tavernay certainly sir you have the precedence having arrived first charny bowed then turning to Rateau, said you confess then that you have published against the queen the playful little tale as you call it which appeared this morning in your paper monsieur it is not against the queen good it only wanted that you are very patient sir cried philippe who was boiling with rage outside the gate oh be easy sir replied charny he shall lose nothing by waiting yes murmured philippe but i also am waiting charny turned again to Rateau. Eteniatna is antoinette transposed oh do not lie sir or instead of beating or simply killing you i shall burn you alive but tell me if you are the sole author of this i am not an informer said Rateau. very well that means that you have an accomplice and first the man who bought a thousand copies of this infamy the count de cogliostro but he shall pay for his share when you have paid for yours monsieur i do not accuse him said Rateau, who feared that he should encounter the anger of cogliostro after he had done with these two charny raised his cane oh if i had a sword cried Rateau. monsieur philippe will you lend your sword to this man no monsieur de charny i cannot lend my sword to a man like that but i will lend you my cane if yours does not suffice corbleu a cane cried Rateau. do you know that i am a gentleman then lend me your sword monsieur de tavernay he shall have mine and i will never touch it again cried charny philippe unsheathed his sword and passed it through the railings now said charny throwing down his sword at the feet of Rateau, you call yourself a gentleman and you write such infamies against the queen of france pick up that sword and let us see what kind of a gentleman you are but Rateau did not stir he seemed as afraid of the sword at his feet as he had been of the uplifted cane morbleu cried philippe open the gate to me pardon monsieur said charny but you acknowledged my right to be first then be quick for i am in a hurry to begin i wish to try other methods before resorting to this for i am not much more fond of inflicting a caning than monsieur Rateau is of receiving one but as he prefers it to fighting he shall be satisfied and a cry from Rateau soon announced that charny had begun the noise soon attracted old aldegonde who joined her voice to her masters charny minded one no more than the other at last however he stopped tired with his work now have you finished sir said philippe yes then pray return me my sword and let me in oh no monsieur implored Rateau, who hoped for a protector in the man who had finished with him i cannot leave monsieur outside the door 
said Charny. Oh, it is a murder, cried Rateau. Kill me right off and have done with it. Be easy, said Charny. I do not think monsieur will touch you. You are right, said Philippe. You have been beaten, let it suffice, but there are the remaining numbers which must be destroyed. Oh, yes, cried Charny. You see, two heads are better than one. I should have forgotten that. But how did you happen to come to this gate, Monsieur de Tavernay? I made some inquiries in the neighborhood about this fellow, and hearing that he had this mode of escape, I thought by coming in here and locking the gate after me, I should cut off his retreat and make sure of him. The same idea of vengeance struck you only more in a hurry. You came straight to his house without any inquiries, and he would have escaped you if I had not luckily been here. I am rejoiced that you were, Monsieur de Tavernay. Now, fellow, lead us to your press. It is not here, said Rateau. A lie, said Charny. No, no, cried Philippe. We do not want the press. The numbers are all printed in here, except those sold to Monsieur de Cogliostro. Then he shall burn them before our eyes. And they pushed Rateau into his shop. End of chapter 30. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 31 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How Two Friends Became Enemies Aldegonde, however, had gone to fetch the guard, but before she returned they had had time to light a fire with the first numbers, and were throwing them in one after another as quickly as possible, when the guard appeared, followed by a crowd of ragged men, women, and boys. Happily, Philippe and Charny knew Rateau's secret exit, so when they caught sight of the guard they made their escape through it, carrying the key with them. Then Rateau began crying, "'Murder!' while Aldegonde, seeing the flames through the window, cried, "'Fire!' The soldiers arrived, but finding the young men gone and the house not on fire, went away again, leaving Rateau to bathe his bruises. But the crowd lingered about all day hoping to see a renewal of the fun. When Tavernet and Charny found themselves in the Rue Vieux-Augustin. "'Monsieur,' said Charny, "'now we have finished that business. Can I be of any use to you?' "'Thanks, sir. I was about to ask you the same question.' "'Thank you, but I have private business which will probably keep me in Paris all day. Permit me, then, to take leave of you. I am happy to have met you.' and i you sir and the two young men bowed but it was easy to see that all this courtesy went no further than the lips philippe went toward the boulevards while charny turned to the river each turned two or three times till he thought himself quite out of sight but after walking for some time charny entered the rue neuve saint gilles 
and there once more found himself face to face with Philippe. Each had again the same idea of demanding satisfaction from the Count de Cogliostro. They could not now doubt each other's intentions, so Philip said, "'I left you the cellar, leave me the buyer. I left you the cane, leave me the sword.' "'Sir,' replied Charny, "'you left it to me simply because I came first, and for no other reason.' "'Well,' replied Tavernet, "'here we arrive both together, and I will make no concession.' "'I did not ask you for any, sir. Only I will defend my right.' and that according to you monsieur de charny is to make monsieur de cogliostro burn his thousand copies remember sir that it was my idea to burn the others then i will have these torn monsieur i am sorry to tell you that i wish to have the first turn with monsieur de cogliostro all that i can agree to sir is to take our chance i will throw up a louis and whoever guesses right shall be first thanks sir but i am not generally lucky and should probably lose and he stepped towards the door charny stopped him stay sir we will soon understand each other well sir answered philippe turning back then before asking satisfaction of monsieur de cogliostro suppose we take a turn in the bois de boulogne it will be out of our way but perhaps we can settle our dispute there one of us will probably be left behind, and the other be uninterrupted. "'Really, monsieur,' said Philippe, "'you echo my own thoughts. Where shall we meet?' "'Well, if my society be not insupportable to you, we need not part. I ordered my carriage to wait for me in the Place Royale, close by here.' "'Then you will give me a seat,' said Philippe, with the greatest pleasure. And they walked together to the carriage— and getting in, set off for the Champs-Élysées. First, however, Charny wrote a few words on his tablets, and gave them to the footman to take to his hotel. In less than half an hour they reached the Bois de Boulogne. The weather was lovely, and the air delightful, although the power of the sun was already felt. The fresh leaves were appearing on the trees, and the violets filled the place with their perfume. "'It is a fine day for our promenade, is it not, Monsieur de Tavernet?' said Charny. "'Beautiful, sir!' "'You may go,' said Charny to his coachman. "'Are you not wrong, sir, to send away your carriage? "'One of us may need it.' "'No, sir,' replied Charny. "'In this affair secrecy before everything, "'and once in the knowledge of a servant "'we risk it being talked of all over Paris to-morrow.' "'As you please, but do you think the fellow does not know "'what we came here for? "'These people know well what brings two gentlemen to the Bois de Boulogne.' and even if he did not feel sure now he will perhaps afterwards see one of us wounded and will have no doubts left then is it not then better to keep him here to take back either who shall need him than to be left or leave me here wounded and alone you are right monsieur replied charny and turning to the coachman he said no stop dauphine you shall wait here dauphine remained accordingly and as he perfectly guessed what was coming he arranged his position so as to see through the still leafless trees all that passed they walked on a little way then philippe said i think monsieur de charny this is a good place excellent monsieur said charny and added chevalier if it were any one but you i would say one word of courtesy 
and we were friends again. But to you, coming from America, where they fight so well, I cannot. And I, sir, to you, who the other evening gained the admiration of an entire court by a glorious feat of arms, can only say, Monsieur le Comte, do me the honor to draw your sword. Monsieur, said Charny, I believe we have neither of us touched on the real cause of quarrel. I do not understand you, Comte. Oh, you understand me perfectly, sir, and you blush while you deny it. Defend yourself, cried Philippe, their swords crossed. Philippe soon perceived that he was superior to his adversary, and therefore became as calm as though he had been only fencing, and was satisfied with defending himself without attacking. "'You spare me, sir,' said Charny. "'May I ask why?' Philippe went on as before. Charny grew warm and wished to provoke him from this sang-froid. Therefore he said, "'I told you, sir, that we had not touched on the real cause of the quarrel.' Philippe did not reply. "'The true cause,' continued Charny. "'Why you sought a quarrel, for it was you who sought it, was that you were jealous of me.' Still Philippe remained silent. "'What is your intention?' again said Charny. "'Do you wish to tire my arm? That is a calculation unworthy of you. Kill me if you can, but do not dally thus.' "'Yes, sir,' replied Philippe at last. "'Your reproach is just. The quarrel did begin with me, and I was wrong.' "'That is not the question now. You have your sword in your hand. Use it for something more than mere defense.' "'Monsieur,' said Philippe, I have the honor to tell you once more I was wrong, and that I apologize. But Charny was by this time too excited to appreciate the generosity of his adversary. Oh, said he, I understand. You wish to play the magnanimous with me. That is it. Is it not, Chevalier? You wish to relate to the ladies this evening how you brought me here and then spared my life. Count, said Philippe, I fear you are losing your senses. You wish to kill Monsieur de Cogliochot to please the Queen, and for the same reason you wish to turn me into ridicule. Ha! This is too much, cried Philippe, and proves to me that you have not as generous a heart as I thought. Pierce it, then, cried Charny, exposing himself as Philippe made another pass. The sword glanced along the ribs, and the blood flowed rapidly. At last, cried Charny, I am wounded. Now I may kill you if I can. Decidedly, said Philippe, you are mad. You will not kill me. You will only be disabled without cause and without profit, for no one will ever know for what you have fought. And as Charny made another pass, he dexterously sent his sword flying from his hand, then seizing it, he broke it across his foot. Monsieur de Charny, said he, you did not require to prove to me that you were brave. You must therefore detest me very much when you fight with such fury. Charny did not reply, but grew visibly pale and then tottered. Philippe advanced to support him, but he repulsed him, saying, I can reach my carriage. At least take this handkerchief to stop the blood. Willingly. And my arm, sir. At the least obstacle you met, you would fall and give yourself unnecessary pain. The sword has only penetrated the skin. I hope soon to be well. So much the better, sir, but I warn you that you will find it difficult to make me your adversary again. Charny tried to reply, but the words died on his lips. 
he staggered and philippe had but just time to catch him in his arms and bear him half fainting to his carriage dauphine who had seen what had passed advanced to meet him and they put charny in drive slowly said philippe who then took his way back to paris murmuring to himself with a sigh she will pity him end of chapter thirty one recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter thirty two of the queen's necklace by alexander dumas translated by henry l williams this LibriVox recording is in the public domain the house in the rue saint gilles philippe jumped into the first coach he saw and told the man to drive to the rue saint gilles where he stopped at the house of monsieur de cogliostro a large carriage with two good horses was standing in the courtyard the coachman was asleep wrapped in a great coat of foxskins and two footmen walked up and down before the door. "'Does the Count Cogliostro live here?' asked Philippe. "'He is just going out.' "'The more reason to be quick, for I wish to speak to him first. Announce the Chevalier Philippe de Tavernay.' And he followed the men upstairs. "'Ask him to walk in,' said from within a voice at once manly and gentle. "'Excuse me, sir.' said the chevalier to a man whom we have already seen first at the table of monsieur de richelieu then at the exhibition of monsieur mesmer in oliver's room and with her at the opera ball for what sir replied he because i prevent you from going out you would have needed an excuse had you been much later for i was waiting for you for me yes i was forewarned of your visit of my visit yes two hours ago it is about that time is it not since you were coming here before when an interruption caused you to postpone the execution of your project philippe began to experience the same strange sensation with which this man inspired every one sit down monsieur de tavernay continued he this armchair was placed for you a truce to pleasantry sir said philippe in a voice which he vainly tried to render calm i do not jest sir then a truce to charlatanism if you are a sorcerer i did not come to make trial of your skill but if you are so much the better for you must know what i am come to say to you oh yes you are come to seek a quarrel you know that perhaps you also know why on account of the queen now sir i am ready to listen and these last words were no longer pronounced in a courteous tones of a host but in the hard and dry ones of an adversary sir there exists a certain publication there are many publications said cogliostro well this publication today was written against the queen cogliostro did not reply you know what i refer to count yes sir you have bought one thousand copies of it i do not deny it luckily they have not reached your hands what makes you think so sir 
because I met the porter, paid him, and sent him with them to my house, and my servant instructed by me will destroy them. You should always finish yourself the work you commence, sir. Are you sure these thousand copies are at your house? Certainly. You deceive yourself, sir. They are here. Ah, you thought that I, sorcerer that I am, would let myself be foiled in that way. You thought it a brilliant idea to buy off my messenger? Well, I have a steward, and you see it is natural for the steward of a sorcerer to be one also. He divined that you would go to the journalist, and that you would meet my messenger, whom he afterwards followed and threatened to make him give back the gold you had given him. If he did not follow his original instructions, instead of taking them to you. But I see you doubt. I do. Look then, and you will believe. In opening an oak cabinet, he showed the astonished Chevalier the thousand copies lying there. Philippe approached the Count in a menacing attitude, but he did not stir. Sir, said Philippe, you appear a man of courage. I call upon you to give me immediate satisfaction. Satisfaction for what? For the insult to the queen, of which you render yourself an accomplice while you keep one number of this vile paper. Monsieur, said Cogliostro, you are in error. I like novelties, scandalous reports, and other amusing things, and collect them that I may remember at a later day what I should otherwise forget. A man of honor, sir, does not collect infamies. But if I do not think this an infamy? You will allow at least that it is a lie. You deceive yourself, sir. The queen was at Monsieur Mesmer's. It is false, sir. You mean to tell me I lie? I do. Well, I will reply in a few words. I saw her there. You saw her? As plainly as I now see you. Philippe looked full at Cogliostro. I still say, sir, that you lie. Cogliostro shrugged his shoulders as though he were talking to a madman. "'Do you not hear me, sir?' said Philippe. "'Every word.' "'And you do not know what giving the lie deserves?' "'Yes, sir. There is a French proverb which says it merits a box on the ears.' "'Well, sir, I am astonished that your hand has not been already raised to give it, as you are a French gentleman and know the proverb.' "'Although a French gentleman?' I am a man, and love my brother. Then you refuse me satisfaction? I only pay what I owe. Then you will compel me to take satisfaction in another manner. How? I exact that you burn the numbers before my eyes, or I will proceed with you as with the journalist. Oh, a beating, <laughs> said Cogliostro, laughing. "'Neither more nor less, sir. Doubtless you can call your servants.' "'Oh, I shall not call my servants,' 
it is my own business. I am stronger than you, and if you approach me with your cane, I shall take you in my arms and throw you across the room, and shall repeat this as often as you repeat your attempt. Well, Monsieur Hercules, I accept the challenge, said Philippe, throwing himself furiously upon Cogliostro, who, seizing him round the neck and waist with a grasp of iron, threw him on a pile of cushions, which lay some way off and then remained standing as coolly as ever. Philippe rose as pale as death. "'Sir,' said he in a hoarse voice, "'you are in fact stronger than I am. But your logic is not as strong as your arm, and you forget—' when you treated me thus that you gave me the right to say, Defend yourself, Count, or I will kill you. Cogliostro did not move. Draw your sword, I tell you, sir, or you are a dead man. You are not yet sufficiently near for me to treat you as before, and I will not expose myself to be killed by you, like poor Gilbert. Gilbert! cried Philippe, reeling back. Did you say Gilbert? Happily you have no gun this time. Only a sword. Monsieur, cried Philippe, you have pronounced a name. Which has awakened a terrible echo in your remembrance, has it not? A name that you never thought to hear again, for you were alone with the poor boy in the grotto of Assois when you assassinated him. Oh, said Philippe, will you not draw? If you knew, said Cogliostro, how easily I could make your sword fly from your hand. With your sword? Yes, with my sword if I wished. Then try. No, I have a still surer method. For the last time, defend yourself said Philippe, advancing towards him. Then the Count took from his pocket a little bottle which he uncorked, and threw the contents in Philippe's face. Scarcely had it touched him, when he reeled, let his sword drop, and fell senseless. Cogliostro picked him up, put him on a sofa, waited for his senses to return, and then said, "'At your age, Chevalier, we should have done with follies. Cease, therefore, to act like a foolish boy.' and listen to me. Philippe made an effort to shake off the torpor, which still held possession of him, and murmured, Oh, sir, do you call these the weapons of a gentleman? Cogliostro shrugged his shoulders. You repeat forever the same word, he said. When we of the nobility have opened our mouths wide enough to utter the word gentleman, we think we have said everything. What do you call the weapons of a gentleman? Is it your sword which served you so badly against me? Or is it your gun which served you so well against Gilbert? What makes some men superior to others? Do you think that it is that high-sounding word, gentleman? No. It is first reason, then strength, most of all science. Well... I have used all these against you. With my reason I braved your insults, with my strength I conquered yours, and with my science 
I extinguished at once your moral and physical powers. Now, I wish to show you that you have committed two faults in coming here with menaces in your mouth. Will you listen to me? You have overpowered me, replied Philippe. I can scarcely move. You have made yourself master of my muscles and of my mind. And then you ask me if I will listen. Then Cogliostro took down from the chimney-piece another little gold vial. "'Smell this, Chevalier,' said he. Philippe obeyed, and it seemed to him that the cloud which hung over him dispersed. "'Oh, I revive,' he cried. "'And you feel free and strong?' "'Yes.' "'With your full powers and memory of the past?' "'Yes.' then this memory gives me an advantage over you no said philippe for i acted in defence of a vital and sacred principle what do you mean i defended the monarchy you defended the monarchy you who went to america to defend a republic ah mon dieu be frank it is not the monarchy you defend Philippe colored. "'To love those who disdain you,' continued Cogliostro, "'who deceive and forget you, is the attribute of great souls. It is the law of the Scriptures to return good for evil. You are a Christian, Monsieur de Tavernay.' "'Monsieur,' cried Philippe, "'not a word more. If I did not defend the monarchy, I defended the queen, that is to say, an innocent woman, and to be respected even if she were not so, for it is a divine law not to attack the weak. The weak? The queen. You call a feeble being her to whom twenty-eight million human beings bow the knee? Monsieur, they calumniate her. How do you know? I believe it. Well? I believe the contrary. We have each the right to think as we please. But you act like an evil genius. Who tells you so? cried Cogliostro with sparkling eyes. How have you the temerity to assume that you are right and that I am wrong? You defend royalty. Well, I defend the people. You say, render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and I say... Render to God the things that are God's. Republican of America, I recall you to the love of the people, to the love of equality. You trample on the people to kiss the hands of a queen. I would throw down a queen to elevate a people. I do not disturb you in your adoration. Leave me in peace at my work. You say to me, die, for you have offended the object of my worship. And I say to you, who combat mine, live, for I feel myself so strong in my principles that neither you nor anyone else can retard my progress for an instant. Sir, you frighten me, said Philippe. You show me the danger in which our monarchy is. Then be prudent and shun the opening gulf. You know, 
replied Philippe, that I would sooner entomb myself in it than see those whom I defend in danger. Well, I have warned you. And I, said Philippe, I, who am but a feeble individual, will use against you the arms of the weak. I implore you, with tearful eyes and joined hands, to be merciful towards those whom you pursue. I ask you to spare me the remorse of knowing you were acting against this poor queen, and not preventing you. I beg you to destroy this publication, which would make a woman shed tears. I ask you, by the love which you have guessed, or I swear that with this sword which has proved so powerless against you, I will pierce myself before your eyes. Ah, murmured Cagliostro, why are they not all like you? Then I would join them, and they should not perish. Monsieur, monsieur, I pray you to reply to me. See then, said Cogliostro, if all the thousand numbers be there, and burn them yourself. Philippe ran to the cabinet, took them out, and threw them on the fire. Adieu, monsieur, then he said, a hundred thanks for the favor you have granted to me. I owed the brother, said Cogliostro when he had gone, some compensation for all I made the sister endure. Then he called for his carriage. End of chapter 32. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 33 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Head of the Tavernet Family While this was passing in the Rue Saint-Gilles, the elder Monsieur Tavernet was walking in his garden, followed by two footmen who carried a chair, with which they approached him every five minutes that he might rest. While doing so, a servant came to announce the Chevalier. "'My son,' said the old man, "'come, Philippe, you arrive apropos.' My heart is full of happy thoughts, but how solemn you look. Do I, sir? You know already the results of that affair? What affair? The old man looked to see that no one was listening, then said, I speak of the ball. I do not understand. Oh! THE BALL AT THE OPERA. Philippe colored. Sit down, continued his father. I want to talk to you. It seems that you, so timid and delicate at first, now compromise her too much. Whom do you mean, sir? Pardieu, do you think I am ignorant of your escapade, both together at the opera ball? It was pretty. Sir, I protest. Oh, do not be angry. I only mean to warn you, for your own good. You are not careful enough. You were seen there with her. I was seen? Pardieu, 
had you or not a blue domino philippe was about to explain that he had not and did not know what his father meant but he thought to himself it is of no use to explain to him he never believes me besides i wish to learn more you see continued the old man triumphantly you were recognized indeed monsieur de richelieu who was at the ball in spite of his eighty-four years wondered who the blue domino could be with whom the queen was walking and he could only suspect you for he knew all the others and pray how does he say he recognized the queen not very difficult when she took her mask off such audacity as that surpasses all imagination she must be really mad about you but take care chevalier you have jealous rivals to fear it is an envied post to be the favorite of the queen when the queen is the real king pardon my moralizing but i do not wish that the breath of chance should blow down what you have reared so skillfully philippe rose the conversation was hateful to him but a kind of savage curiosity impelled him to hear everything we are already envied continued the old man that is natural but we have not yet attained the height to which we shall rise to you will belong the glory of raising our name and now you are progressing so well only be prudent or you will fail after all soon however you must ask for some high post and obtain for me a lord lieutenancy not too far from paris then you can have a peerage and become a duke and a lieutenant-general in two years if i am still alive enough enough groaned philippe oh if you are satisfied with that i am not you have a whole life before you i perhaps only have a few months however i do not complain god gave me two children and if my daughter has been useless in repairing our fortunes you will make up for it i see in you the great tavernet and you inspire me with respect for your conduct has been admirable you show no jealousy but leave the field apparently open to every one while you really hold it alone i do not understand you replied philippe oh no modesty it was exactly the conduct of monsieur potemkin who astonished the world with his fortunes he saw that catherine loved variety in her amours that if left free she would fly from flower to flower returning always to the sweetest and most beautiful but that if pursued she would fly right away he took his part therefore he even introduced new favorites to his sovereign to weary her out with their number but through and after
after the quickly succeeding reigns of the twelve caesars as they were ironically called potemkin in reality was supreme what incomprehensible infamies murmured poor philippe but the old man went on according to his system however you have been still a little wrong he never abandoned his surveillance and you are too lax in this philippe replied only by shrugging his shoulders he really began to think his father was crazy ah you thought i did not see your game you are already providing a successor for you have divined that there is no stability in the queen's amours and in the event of her changing you wish not to be quite thrown aside therefore you make friends with monsieur de charny who might otherwise when his turn comes exile you as you now might messieurs de coigny vaudrille and others philippe with an angry flush said once more enough i am ashamed to have listened so long those who say that the queen of france is a messalina are criminal calumniators i tell you said the old man no one can hear and i approve your plan monsieur de charny will repay your kindness some day your logic is admirable sir and monsieur de charny is so much my favorite that i have just passed my sword through his ribs what cried the old man somewhat frightened at his son's flashing eyes you have not been fighting yes sir that is my method of conciliating my successors and he turned to go away philippe you jest i do not sir the old man rose and tottered off to the house quick said he to the servant let a man on horseback go at once and ask after monsieur de charny who has been wounded and let him be sure to say he comes from me then he murmured to himself mine is still the only head in the family end of chapter thirty three recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter thirty four of the Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Stanzas of Monsieur de Provence. While these events were passing in Paris and in Versailles, the king, tranquil as usual, sat in his study, surrounded by maps and plans, and traced new paths for the vessels of La Perouse. A slight knock at his door roused him from his study and a voice said may i come in brother the comte de provence growled the king discontentedly enter a short person came in you did not expect me brother he said no indeed do i disturb you have you anything particular to say such a strange report oh some scandal yes brother 
which has amused you because it is so strange something against me should i laugh if it were then against the queen sire imagine that i was told quite seriously that the queen slept out the other night that would be very sad if it were true replied the king but it is not true is it no nor that the queen was seen waiting outside the gate at the reservoirs no the day you know that you ordered the gates to be shut at eleven o'clock i do not remember well brother they pretend that the queen was seen arm in arm with monsieur d'artois at half past twelve that night where going to a house which he possesses behind the stables has not your majesty heard this report yes you took care of that how sire what have i done some verses which were printed in the mercury some verses said the count growing red oh yes you are a favorite of the muses not i sire oh do not deny it i have the manuscript in your writing now if you had informed yourself of what the queen really did that day instead of writing these lines against her and consequently against me you would have written an ode in her favor perhaps the subject does not inspire you but i should have liked a bad ode better than a good satire sire you overwhelm me but i trust you will believe i was deceived and did not mean harm perhaps besides i did not say i believed it and then a few verses are nothing now a pamphlet like one i have just seen a pamphlet yes sire and i want an order for the bastille for the author of it the king rose let me see it he said i do not know if i ought certainly you ought have you got it with you yes sire and he drew from his pocket the history of the queen Eteniotna, one of the fatal numbers which had escaped from philippe and charny the king glanced over it rapidly infamous he cried you see sire they pretend the queen went to monsieur mesmer's well she did go she went authorized by me oh sire that is nothing against her i gave my consent did your majesty intend that she should experimentalize on herself the king stamped with rage as the count said this he was reading one of the most insulting passages the history of her contortions voluptuous disorder and the attention she had excited impossible he cried growing pale and he rang the bell oh the police shall deal with this fetch monsieur de crosny 
sire it is his day for coming here and he is now waiting let him come in shall i go brother said the count no remain if the queen be guilty you are one of the family and must know it if innocent you who have suspected her must hear it monsieur de crosny entered and bowed saying the report is ready sire first sir said the king explain how you allow such infamous publications against the queen at teniotna asked monsieur de crosny yes well sire it is a man called Rateau. you know his name and have not arrested him sire nothing is more easy i have an order already prepared in my portfolio then why is it not done monsieur de crosny looked at the count i see monsieur de crosny wishes me to leave said he no replied the king remain and you monsieur de crosny speak freely well sire i wished first to consult your majesty whether you would not rather give him some money and send him away to be hanged elsewhere why because sire if these men tell lies the people are glad enough to see them whipped or even hanged but if they chance upon a truth a truth it is true that the queen went to monsieur mesmer's but i gave her permission oh sire cried monsieur de crosny his tone of sincerity struck the king more than anything monsieur de provence had said and he answered i suppose sir that was no harm no sire but her majesty has compromised herself monsieur de crosny what have your police told you sire many things which with all possible respect for her majesty agree in many points with this pamphlet let me hear that the queen went in a common dress in the middle of this crowd and alone alone cried the king yes sire you are deceived monsieur de crosny i do not think so sire you have bad reporters sir so exact that i can give your majesty a description of her dress of all her movements of her cries her cries even her sighs were observed sire it is impossible she could have so far forgotten what is due to me and to herself oh yes said the comte de provence her majesty is surely incapable louis the sixteenth interrupted him sir said he to monsieur de crosny you maintain what you have said unhappily yes sire i will examine into it further 
said the king, passing his handkerchief over his forehead, on which the drops hung from anxiety and vexation. I did permit the queen to go, but I ordered her to take with her a person safe, irreproachable, and even holy. Ah! said Monsieur de Crosny, if she had but done so. Yes, said the count, if a lady like Madame de Lombaye, for instance. It was precisely she whom the queen promised to take. Unhappily, sire, she did not do so. Well, said the king with agitation, if she has disobeyed me so openly, I ought to punish, and I will punish, only some doubts still remain on my mind. These doubts you do not share? That is natural. You are not the king, husband and friend of her whom they accuse. However, I will proceed to clear the affair up. He rang. Let someone see, said he to the person who came, where Madame de Lombaye is. Sire, she is walking in the garden with her majesty and another lady. Beg her to come to me. Now, gentlemen, in ten minutes we shall know the truth. All were silent. Monsieur de Crosny was really sad, and the Count put on an affectation of it which might have solemnized Momus himself. End of chapter 34 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 35 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas Translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Princess de Lombaye The Princess de Lombaye entered beautiful and calm, her hair drawn back from her noble forehead, her dark penciled eyebrows, her clear blue eyes and beautiful lips, and her unrivaled figure formed a lovely tout ensemble. She seemed always surrounded by an atmosphere of virtue and grace. The king looked at her with a troubled expression, dreading what he was about to hear, then bowing, said, "'Sit down, princess.' "'What does your majesty desire?' asked she in a sweet voice. "'Some information, princess. What day did you last go with the queen to Paris?' "'Wednesday, sire.' "'Pardon me, cousin,' said Louis the Sixteenth. "'but I wish to know the exact truth.' "'You will never hear anything else from me, sire.' "'What did you go there for?' "'I went to Monsieur Mesmer's Place Vendôme.' The two witnesses trembled. The king colored with delight. "'Alone?' asked the king. "'No, sire, with the queen.' "'With the queen?' cried Louis, seizing her hand. "'Yes, sire.' Monsieur de Provence and Monsieur de Crosny looked stupefied. "'Your Majesty had authorized the Queen to go. At least so she told me,' continued the princess. "'It was true, cousin. Gentlemen, I breathe again. Madame de Lombaye never tells a falsehood.' "'Never, sire.' "'Oh, never, sire!' said Monsieur de Crosny with perfect sincerity. "'But will you permit me, sire?' 
certainly monsieur question search as much as you please i place the princess at your disposal madame de lamballe smiled i am ready she said madame said the lieutenant of police have the goodness to tell his majesty what you did there and how the queen was dressed she had on a dress of grey taffeta a mantle of embroidered muslin an ermine muff and a rose-coloured velvet bonnet trimmed with black Monsieur de crosny looked astonished it was a totally different dress from that which he had had described to him the comte de provence bit his lips with vexation and the king rubbed his hands what did you do on entering asked he sire you are right to say on entering for we hardly entered the room together yes sire and we could scarcely have been seen for every one was occupied with the experiments going on when a lady approached the queen and offered her a mask implored her to turn back and you stopped yes sire you never went through the rooms asked monsieur de crosny no monsieur and you never quitted the queen asked the king not for a moment sire her majesty never left my arm now cried the king what do you say monsieur de crosny and you brother it is extraordinary quite supernatural said the count who affected a gaiety which could not conceal his disappointment there is nothing supernatural said monsieur de crosny who felt real remorse what madame de lamballe says is undoubtedly true therefore my informants must have been mistaken do you speak seriously sir asked the count perfectly monseigneur her majesty did what madame de lamballe states and nothing more i feel convinced my agents were somehow or other deceived as for this journalist i will immediately send the order for his imprisonment madame de lamballe looked from one to the other with an expression of innocent curiosity one moment said the king you spoke of a lady who came to stop you tell us who she was her majesty seemed to know her sire because cousin i must speak to this person then we shall learn the key to this mystery that is my opinion also sire said monsieur de crosny did the queen tell you that she knew this person said the count she told me so monseigneur my brother means to say that you probably know her name madame de lamotte valois that intriguer cried the king diable said the count she will be difficult to interrogate she is cunning we will be as cunning as she said monsieur de crosny i do not like such people about the queen said louis she is so good that all the beggars crowd round her madame de lamotte is a true valois said the princess however that may be 
I will not see her here. I prefer depriving myself of the pleasure of hearing the Queen's innocence confirmed to doing that. But you must see her here, sire, said the Queen, entering at that moment pale with anger, beautiful with a noble indignation. It is not now for you to say I do, or I do not wish to see her. She is a witness from whom the intelligence of my accusers— said she, looking at her brother-in-law, and the justice of my judges, turning to the king and Monsieur de Crosny, must draw the truth. I, the accused, demand that she be heard. Madame, said the king, we will not do Madame de Lamotte the honor of sending for her to give evidence either for or against you. I cannot stake your honor against the veracity of this woman." "'You need not send for her. She is here.' "'Here?' cried the king. "'Sire, you know I went to see her one day, the day of which so many things were said.' And she looked again at the Comte de Provence, who felt ready to sink through the ground. "'And I then dropped at her house a box containing a portrait which she was to return to me today. And she is here.' "'No.' no said the king i am satisfied and do not wish to see her but i am not satisfied and shall bring her in besides why this repugnance what has she done if there be anything tell me you monsieur de crosny you know everything i know nothing against this lady replied he really certainly not she is poor and perhaps ambitious, but that is all. If there be no more than that against her, the king can surely admit her. I do not know why, said Louis, but I have a presentiment that this woman will be the cause of misfortune to me. Oh, sire, that is superstition. Pray fetch her, Madame de la Baye. Five minutes after... Jean, with a timid air, although with a distinguished appearance, entered the room. Louis XVI, strong in his antipathies, had turned his back toward her, and was leaning his head on his hands, seeming to take no longer a part in the conversation. The Comte de Provence cast on her a look which, had her modesty been real, would have increased her confusion, but it required much more than that to trouble Jean. "'Madame,' said the Queen, have the goodness to tell the king exactly what passed the other day at Monsieur Mesmer's. Jean did not speak. It requires no consideration, continued the queen. We want nothing but the simple truth. Jean understood immediately that the queen had need of her, and knew that she could clear her in a moment by speaking the simple truth, but she felt inclined to keep her secret. Sire? she said. I went to see Monsieur Mesmer from curiosity like the rest of the world. The spectacle appeared to me rather a coarse one. I turned and suddenly saw Her Majesty entering, whom I had already had the honor of seeing, but without knowing her till her generosity revealed her rank. It seemed to me that Her Majesty was out of place in this room, where much suffering and many ridiculous exhibitions were going on. I beg pardon for having taken it on myself to judge— it was a woman's instinct, 
but I humbly beg pardon if I pass the bounds of proper respect. She seemed overcome with emotion as she concluded. Everyone but the king was pleased. Madame de Lombaye thought her conduct delicate and herself timid, intelligent, and good. The queen thanked her by a look. Well, she said, you have heard, sire. He did not move, but said, I did not need her testimony. I was told to speak, said Jean timidly, and I obeyed. It is enough, answered he. When the queen says a thing, she needs no witnesses to confirm her, and when she has my approbation, and she has it, she need care for that of no one else. He cast an overwhelming look on his brother, and kissing the hands of the queen and the princess, and begging pardon of the latter for having disturbed her for nothing, made a very slight bow to Jean. The ladies then left the room. Brother, said Louis to the Count, now I will detain you no longer. I have work to do with Monsieur de Crosny. You have heard your sister's complete justification, and it is easy to see you are as pleased as myself. Pray, sit down, Monsieur de Crosny. End of chapter 35 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 36 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Queen The Queen, after leaving the King, felt deeply the danger she had been so nearly incurring. She was therefore pleased with Jeanne, who had been the means of preventing it, and said to her with a gracious smile, "'It is really fortunate, madame.' that you prevented my prolonging my stay at Monsieur Mesmer's, for only think, they have taken advantage of my being there to say that I was under the influence of the magnetism. But, said Madame de Lombaye, it is very strange that the police should have been so deceived and have affirmed that they saw the Queen in the inner room. It is strange, said the Queen, and Monsieur de Crosny is an honest man, and would not willingly injure me. But his agents may have been bought. I have enemies, dear Lombaye. Still, there must have been some foundation for this tale. The infamous libel represents me as intoxicated and overcome to such a degree by the magnetic fluid that I lost all control over myself and all womanly reserve. Did any such scene take place, Madame la Comtesse? Was there any one who behaved like this? Jean colored. The secret once told, she lost all the fatal influence which she could now exercise over the queen's destiny. Therefore she again resolved to keep silent on this point. Madame, said she, there was a woman much agitated, who attracted great attention by her contortions and cries. Probably some actress or loose character— "'Possibly, madame.' "'Countess, you replied very well to the king, and I will not forget you. How have you advanced in your own affairs?' At this moment Madame de Misery came in to say that Mademoiselle de Tavernay wished to know if Her Majesty would receive her. "'Assuredly,' said the queen. "'How ceremonious you always are, Andrea. Why do you stand so much upon etiquette?' 
your majesty is too good to me madame de lamballe now availed herself of andrea's entrance to take leave well andrea the queen then said here is this lady whom we went to see the other day i recognize madame said andrea bowing do you know what they have been saying of me yes madame monsieur de provence has been repeating the story oh no doubt therefore we will leave that subject countess we were speaking of you who protects you now you madame replied jeanne boldly since you permit me to come and kiss your hand few people she continued dared to protect me when i was in obscurity now that i have been seen with your majesty every one will be anxious to do so then said the queen no one has been either brave enough or corrupt enough to protect you for yourself i had the first madame de boulainvilliers a brave protector then her husband a corrupt one but since my marriage no one oh yes i forget one brave man a generous prince prince countess who is it monsieur the cardinal de rohan my enemy said the queen smiling your enemy oh madame it seems you are astonished that a queen should have an enemy it is evident you have not lived at court but madame he adores you the devotion of the cardinal equals his respect for you oh doubtless said the queen with a hearty laugh that is why he is my enemy jeanne looked surprised and you are his protege continued the queen tell me all about it it is very simple his eminence has assisted me in the most generous yet the most considerate manner good prince louis is generous no one can deny that but do you not think andrea that monsieur le cardinal also adores this pretty countess a little come countess tell us and marie antoinette laughed again in her frank joyous manner all this gaiety must be put on thought jeanne so she answered in a grave tone madame i have the honor to affirm to your majesty that monsieur de rohan well since you are his friend ask him what he did with some hair of mine which he bribed a certain hairdresser to steal and which trick cost the poor man dear for he lost my custom your majesty surprises me monsieur de rohan did that oh yes all his adoration you know after having hated me at vienna and having employed every means to try and prevent my marriage he at last began to perceive that i was a woman and his queen and that he had offended me for ever then this dear prince began to fear for his fortune and like all of his profession who seem most fond of those whom they most fear and as he knew me young and believed me foolish in vain he turned he became a professed admirer and began with sighs and glances he adores me does he not andrea madame oh andrea will not compromise herself but i say what i please at least i may have that advantage from being a queen 
so it is a settled thing that the cardinal adores me and you may tell him countess that he has my permission jeanne instead of seeing in all this only the angry disdain of a noble character which she was incapable of appreciating fought it all pique against m rohan hiding another feeling for him and therefore began to defend him with all her eloquence the queen listened good she listens thought jeanne and did not again understand that she listened through generosity and through pleasure at anything so novel as to hear any person defend one of whom the sovereign chose to speak ill and felt pleased with her thinking she saw a heart where none was placed all at once a joyous voice was heard near and the queen said here is the comte d'artois when he entered the queen introduced the countess to him pray do not let me send you away madame la comtesse said he as jeanne made a move to depart the queen also requested her to stay you have returned from the wolf hunt then she said yes sister and have had good sport i have killed seven i'm not sure continued he laughing but they say so however do you know i have gained seven hundred franc how why they pay a hundred franc a head for these beasts it is dear but i would give two hundred of them just now for the head of a certain journalist ah you know the story monsieur de provence told me he is indefatigable but tell me how he related it so as to make you whiter than snow or venus aphroditus it seems you came out of it gloriously you are fortunate oh you call that fortunate do you hear him andrea yes for you might have gone alone without madame de lamballe and you might not have had madame de lamotte there to stop your entrance ah you know that too oh yes the count told everything then you might not have had madame de lamotte at hand to give her testimony you will tell me doubtless that virtue and innocence are like the violet which does not require to be seen in order to be recognized but still i say you are fortunate badly proved i will prove it still better saved so well from the unlucky scrape of the cabriolet saved from this affair and then at the ball whispered he in her ear what ball the ball at the opera what do you mean i mean the ball at the opera but i beg pardon i should not have mentioned it really brother you puzzle me i know nothing about the ball at the opera the words ball and opera caught jeanne's ear and she listened intently i am dumb said the prince but count i insist on knowing what it means oh pray allow me to let it drop do you want to disoblige me no sister but i have said quite enough for you to understand you have told me nothing oh sister it is needless with me 
but really i am in earnest you wish me to speak immediately not here said he looking at the others yes here there cannot be too many at such an explanation then you mean to say you were not at the last ball i cried the queen at the ball at the opera hush i beg no i will not hush i will speak it aloud you say i was at the ball certainly i do perhaps you saw me she said ironically yes i did me yes you oh it is too much why did you not speak to me <laughs> ma foi i was just going to do so when the crowd separated us you are mad i should not have spoken of it i have been very foolish the queen rose and walked up and down the room in great agitation andrea trembled with fear and disquietude and jean could hardly keep from laughing then the queen stopped and said my friend do not jest any more you see i am so passionate that i have lost my temper already tell me at once that you were joking with me i will if you please sister be serious charles you have invented all this have you not he winked at the ladies and said oh yes of course you do not understand me brother cried the queen vehemently say yes or no do not tell falsehoods i only want the truth well then sister said he in a low voice i have told the truth but i am sorry i spoke you saw me there as plain as i see you now and you saw me the queen uttered a cry and running up to andrea and jeanne cried ladies monsieur le comte d'artois affirms that he saw me at the ball at the opera let him prove it well said he i was with monsieur de richelieu and others when your mask fell off my mask i was about to say this is too rash sister but the gentleman with you drew you away so quickly oh mon dieu you will drive me mad what gentleman the blue domino the queen passed her hand over her eyes what day was this she asked saturday the next day i set off to hunt before you were up what time do you say you saw me between two and three decidedly one of us is mad oh it is i it is all a mistake do not be so afraid there is no harm done at first i thought you were with the king but the blue domino spoke german and he does not well brother on saturday i went to bed at eleven the count bowed with an incredulous smile the queen rang madame de misery shall tell you 
why do you not call the rent also <laughs> said he laughing oh cried the queen in a rage not to be believed my dear sister if i believed you others would not what others those who saw you as well as myself who were they monsieur philippe de tavernay for instance my brother cried andrea yes shall we ask him immediately mon dieu murmured andrea my brother a witness yes i wish it and she went to seek him at his father's he was just leaving after the scene we have described with his father when the messenger met him he came quickly and marie antoinette turned to him at once sir said she are you capable of speaking the truth incapable of anything else madame well then say frankly have you seen me at any public place within the last week yes madame all hearts beat so that you might have heard them where said the queen in a terrible voice philippe was silent oh no concealment sir my brother says you saw me at the ball of the opera i did madame the queen sank on a sofa then rising furiously she said it is impossible for i was not there take care monsieur de tavernay your majesty said andrea pale with anger if my brother says he saw you he did see you you also cried marie antoinette it only remains now for you to have seen me pardieu my enemies overwhelm me when i saw that the blue domino was not the king said the comte d'artois i believed him to be that nephew of monsieur de Souffren, whom you received so well here the other night the queen colored did it not look something like his tourneur monsieur de tavernay continued the count i did not remark monseigneur said he in a choking voice but i soon found out that it was not he for suddenly i saw him before me and he was close by you when your mask fell off so he saw me too if he were not blind he did the queen rang what are you about to do send for him also and ask i will drink this cup to the dregs i do not think he can come said philippe why because i believe he is not well oh he must come monsieur i am not well either but i would go to the end of the world barefoot to prove all at once andrea who was near the window uttered an exclamation what is it cried the queen oh nothing only here comes monsieur de chargny the queen in her excitement ran to the window opened it and cried monsieur de chargny he full of astonishment hastened to enter end of chapter thirty six recording by john van stan savannah georgia
Chapter thirty seven of the Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. An Alibi Monsieur de Charny entered a little pale, but upright and not apparently suffering. Take care, sister, said the Comte d'Artois. What is the use of asking so many people? Brother, I will ask the whole world till I meet someone who will tell you you are deceived. Charny and Philippe bowed courteously to each other, and Philippe said in a low voice, You are surely mad to come out wounded. One would say you wish to die. One does not die from the scratch of a thorn in the Bois de Bouillon, replied Charny. The queen approached and put an end to this conversation. Monsieur de Charny, said she, these gentlemen say that you were at the ball at the opera. Yes, your majesty. Tell us what you saw there. Does your majesty mean whom I saw there? Precisely, and no complacent reserve, monsieur de Sarny. Must I say, madame? The cheeks of the queen assumed once more that deadly paleness, which at many times that morning alternated with a burning red. Did you see me? she asked. Yes, your majesty, at the moment when your mask unhappily fell off. Marie Antoinette clasped her hands. Monsieur, said she, almost sobbing, look at me well. Are you sure of what you say? madame your features are engraved in the hearts of your subjects to see your majesty once is to see you for ever but monsieur said she i assure you i was not at the ball at the opera oh madame said the young man bowing low has not your majesty the right to go where you please i do not ask you to find excuses for me I only ask you to believe. I will believe all your majesty wishes me to believe, cried he. Sister, sister, it is too much, murmured the count. No one believes me, cried she, throwing herself on the sofa with tears in her eyes. Sister, pardon me, said the count tenderly. You are surrounded by devoted friends this secret which terrifies you so we alone know it is confined to our hearts and no one shall drag it from us while we have life this secret oh i want nothing but to prove the truth madame said andrea someone approaches the king was announced the king oh so much the better he is my only friend he would not believe me guilty even if he thought he saw me the king entered with an air of calmness a strange contrast to the disturbed countenances of those present sire said the queen you come apropos there is yet another calumny another insult to combat what is it said louis advancing an infamous report aid me sire for now it is no longer my enemies that accuse me but my friends your friends yes sire monsieur le comte d'artois 
monsieur de tavernay and monsieur de charny affirm that they saw me at the ball at the opera at the ball at the opera cried the king a terrible silence ensued madame de lamotte saw the mortal paleness of the queen the terrible disquietude of the king and of all the others and with one word she could have put an end to all this and saved the queen not only now but in the future from much distress but she said to herself that it was too late that they would see if she spoke now that she had deceived them before when the simple truth would have been of such advantage to the queen and she should forfeit her newly acquired favor so she remained silent the king repeated with an air of anguish at the ball at the opera does monsieur de provence know this but sire it is not true monsieur le comte d'artois deceived monsieur de tavernay is deceived monsieur de charny you are deceived one may be mistaken all bowed come continued she call all my people ask every one you say it was saturday yes sister well what did i do on saturday let someone tell me for i think i am going mad and shall begin at last to believe that i did go to this infamous ball but gentlemen if i had been there i would have confessed it at this moment the king approached her every cloud gone from his brow well marie said he if it was saturday there is no need to call your women or only to ask them at what hour i came to your room i believe it was past eleven oh cried the queen joyfully you are right sire and she threw herself into his arms then blushing and confused she hid her face on his shoulder while he kissed her tenderly well said the comte d'artois full of both surprise and joy i will certainly buy spectacles but on my word i would not have lost this scene for a million of money would you gentlemen philippe was leaning against the wainscot as pale as death charny wiped the burning drops from his forehead therefore gentlemen said the king turning toward them i know it to be impossible that the queen was that night at the ball at the opera believe it or not as you please the queen i am sure is content that i know her to be innocent well said monsieur d'artois provence may say what he pleases but i defy his wife to prove an alibi in the same way if she should be accused of passing the night out charles pardon sire now i will take my leave well i will go with you and once more kissing the queen's hand they left the room monsieur de tavernay said the queen severely when they were gone do you not accompany monsieur d'artois philippe started all the blood rushed to his head and he had hardly strength to bow and leave the room andrea was also to be pitied she knew that philippe would have given the world to have taken monsieur de charny away with him but she felt as though she could not follow to comfort him leaving charny alone with the queen or only with madame de lamotte who she instinctively felt was worse than no one but why this feeling she could not love charny that she told herself was impossible so slight and recent an acquaintance 
and she who had vowed to love no one. Why then did she suffer so much when Charny addressed words of such respectful devotion to the queen? Was not this jealousy? Yes, she thought, but only jealousy that this woman should draw all hearts toward her. While the whole world of gallantry and love passed her coldly by, it was no attraction to be a living problem, ever cold and reserved like Andrea. They felt it, turned from her beauty and her intellect, and contented themselves with mere politeness. Andrea felt this deeply, but on the night when they first met Charny, he showed toward her nothing of this coldness or reserve. She was to him as interesting as any other beautiful woman, and she felt cheered and warmed by it. But now the queen absorbed his every look and thought, and left her lonely again. Therefore, she did not follow her brother, although she suffered in his sufferings, and almost idolized him. She did not, however, attempt to mingle in the conversation, but sat down by the fire almost with her back to the queen and Charny, while Madame de Lamotte stood in one of the deep windows, nearly out of sight, although she could observe all that passed. The queen remained silent for some minutes, then she said almost to herself, "'Would any one believe that such things pass here?' Then turning to Charny, she said, "'We hear, sir, of the dangers of the sea and of the fury of tempests, but you have doubtless encountered all their assaults, and you are still safe and honored, "'Madame, then the English, our enemies, have attacked you with their guns and their power, but still you are safe, and on account of the enemies you have conquered, the king felicitates and admires you, and the people bless and love you. Therefore, blessed are such enemies who menace us only with death. Our enemies do not endanger existence, it is true, but they add years to our lives. They make us bow the head, fearing, though innocent, to meet, as I have done, the double attacks of friends and enemies. And then, sir, if you knew how hard it is to be hated— Andrea listened anxiously for his reply, but he only leaned against the wall and grew pale. The queen looked at him and said, "'It is too hot here. Madame de Lamotte opened the window. Monsieur is accustomed to the fresh sea breezes. He would stifle in our boudoirs.' "'It is not that, madame, but I am on duty at two o'clock, and unless your majesty wishes me to remain—' "'Oh, no, monsieur!' We know what duty is. You are free, said the queen in a tone of slight pique. Charny bowed and disappeared like a man in haste, but in a minute they heard from the antechamber the sound of a groan and people hurrying forward. The queen, who was near the door, opened it and uttered an exclamation and was going out, when Andrea rose quickly, saying, Oh, no, madame! Then they saw through the open door the guards assisting Monsieur de Charny, who had fainted. The queen closed the door and sat down again, pensive and thoughtful. At last she said, "'It is an odd thing, but I do not believe Monsieur de Charny was convinced.' "'Oh, madame, in spite of the king's word, impossible!' "'He may have thought the king said it for his own sake.' "'My brother was not so incredulous,' said Andrea. "'It would be very wrong,' continued the queen, not heeding her. "'He could not have as noble a heart as I thought. "'But, after all, 
Why should he believe? He thought he saw me. They all thought so. There is something in all this, something which I must clear up. Andrea, I must find out what it all means. Your Majesty is right. You must investigate it. For, continued the Queen, people said they saw me at Monsieur Mesmer's. But your Majesty was there, said Madame de Lamotte. Yes, but I did not do what they insist they saw me do. And they saw me at the opera, and I was not there. Oh, cried she, at last I guess the truth. The truth? stammered the Countess. Oh, I hope so, said Andrea. Send for Monsieur de Crosny, said the Queen joyously. End of chapter 37 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 38 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas Translated by Henry L. Williams This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Monsieur de Crosny Monsieur de Crosny had felt himself in no slight degree embarrassed since his interview with the King and Queen. It was no light matter to have the care of the interests of a crown and of the fame of a queen, and he feared that he was about to encounter all the weight of a woman's anger and a queen's indignation. He knew, however, that he had but done his duty, and he entered, therefore, tranquilly, with a smile on his face. "'Now, Monsieur de Crosny,' said the Queen, "'it is our turn for an explanation.' "'I am at Your Majesty's orders.' "'You ought to know the cause of all that has happened to me, sir.' Monsieur de Crosny looked round him, rather frightened. "'Never mind these ladies,' said the Queen. You know them both. You know every one. Nearly, said the magistrate, and I know the effects, but not the cause of what has happened to your majesty. Then I must enlighten you, although it is a disagreeable task. I might tell you in private, but my thoughts and words are always open as the day, as the world may know them. I attribute the attacks that have been made upon me to the misconduct of someone who resembles me and who goes everywhere and thus your agents have made these mistakes a resemblance cried monsieur de crosny too much occupied with the idea to observe the unquiet look which jeanne could not for a moment prevent appearing well sir do you think this impossible or do you prefer to think that i am deceiving you oh no madame but surely however strong a resemblance may be there must be some points of difference to prevent people being so deceived it seems not sir some are deceived oh and i remember said andrea when we lived at tavernay maison rouge we had a servant who very strongly resembled me most wonderfully your majesty and what became of her we did not then know the great generosity of your majesty's mind and my father feared that this resemblance might be disagreeable to you and when we were at trianon we kept her out of sight you see monsieur de crosny oh this interests you much madame 
afterwards, dear Andrea. Madame, this girl, who was of an ambitious disposition and troublesome temper, grew tired of this quiet life, and had doubtless made bad acquaintances. For one night when I went to bed, I was surprised not to see her. We sought her in vain. She had disappeared. Did she steal anything? Nothing, madame. You did not know all this, Monsieur de Crosny? No, madame. Thus, then, there is a woman whose resemblance to me is striking, and you do not know her. I fear your police is badly organized. No, madame, a police magistrate is but a man, and though the vulgar may rate his power as something almost superhuman, your majesty is more reasonable. Still, sir, when a man has secured all possible powers for penetrating secrets, when he pays agents and spies, and to such an extent as to know every movement I make, he might prevent this sort of thing. Madame, when your majesty passed the night out, I knew it, the day you went to see Madame at the Rue Saint-Claude. Therefore, my police is not bad. When you went to Monsieur Mesmer's, my agents saw you. When you went to the opera. The queen started. Pardon me, madame, if I saw you. But if your own brother-in-law mistook you, surely an agent at a crown a day may be pardoned for having done so. They thought they saw you and uh, reported accordingly. Therefore my police is not bad. They also knew this affair of the journalist, so well punished by Monsieur de Charny. Monsieur de Charny? cried the queen and Andrea in a breath. Yes, madame, his blows are yet fresh on the shoulders of the journalist. Monsieur de Charny? committed himself with this fellow i know it by my uh, calumniated police madame and also which was more difficult the duel which followed a duel monsieur de charny fought with the journalist asked andrea no madame the journalist was too well beaten to give monsieur de charny the sword thrust which made him faint here just now wounded cried the queen how and when he was here just now oh said andrea i saw that he suffered what do you say cried the queen almost angrily you saw that he suffered and did not mention it andrea did not reply jean who wished to make a friend of her came to her aid saying i also saw madame saw that monsieur de charny had difficulty in standing up while your majesty spoke to him monsieur said the queen again to monsieur de crosny with whom and why did monsieur de charny fight with a gentleman who but really madame it is useless now the two adversaries are friends again for they spoke just now in your majesty's presence in my presence yes madame um the conqueror left about twenty minutes ago monsieur de tavernay cried the queen my brother murmured andrea i believe said monsieur de crosny that it was he with whom monsieur de charny fought 
the queen made an angry gesture it is not right she said these are american manners brought to versailles it is not because one has fought under monsieur lafayette and washington that my court should be disgraced by such proceedings andrea did you know your brother had fought not till this moment madame why did he fight if my brother fought said andrea it was in your majesty's service that is to say that monsieur de charny fought against me your majesty i only spoke of my brother and of no one else the queen tried hard to remain calm she walked once or twice up and down the room and then said monsieur de crosny you have convinced me i was much disturbed by these rumors and accusations your police is efficient but i beg you not to forget to investigate this resemblance of which i have spoken adieu and she held out her hand to him with her own peculiar grace andrea made a movement to depart the queen gave her a careless adieu Jeanne also prepared to leave when madame de misery entered madame said she to the queen did your majesty appoint this hour to receive messieurs burma and bossange oh yes it is true let them come in remain a little longer madame de lamotte i want the king to make a full peace with you perhaps she wished to pique andrea by this favor to a newcomer but andrea did not seem to heed all these taverners are made of iron thought the queen ha gentlemen what do you bring me now you know i have no money end of chapter thirty eight recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter thirty nine of the queen's necklace by alexandre dumas translated by henry l williams this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Temptress Madame de Lamotte remained, therefore, as before. Madame, replied Monsieur Burmer, we do not come to offer anything to your majesty. We should fear to be indiscreet, but we have come to fulfill a duty, and that has emboldened us. A duty? Concerning the necklace, which your majesty did not deign to take. Oh! <laughs> then the necklace has come again said marie antoinette laughing it was really beautiful monsieur Boma. so beautiful said bozange that your majesty alone was worthy to wear it my consolation is said the queen with a sigh which did not escape Jeanne, that it cost a million and a half was not that the price monsieur Boma? yes your majesty and in these times continued the queen there is no sovereign that can give such a sum for a necklace so that although i cannot wear it no one else can and once broken up i should care nothing about it that is an error of your majesty's the necklace is sold sold cried the queen to whom ah madame that is a state secret Whew said the queen i think i am safe a state secret means that there is nothing to tell with your majesty continued Burma as gravely as ever we do not act as with others the necklace is sold 
but in the most secret manner and an ambassador i really think he believes it himself interrupted the queen laughing again come monsieur Burmer, tell me at least the country he comes from or at all events the first letter of his name madame it is the ambassador from portugal said Burmer in a low voice that madame de lamotte might not hear the ambassador from portugal said the queen there is none here monsieur Burmer. he came expressly for this madame do you imagine so yes madame what is his name monsieur de souza the queen did not reply for a few minutes and then said well so much the better for the queen of portugal let us speak of it no more but allow us one moment madame said Burmer. have you ever seen these diamonds said the queen to jean no madame they are beautiful it is a pity these gentlemen have not brought them here they are said Burmer, opening the case come countess you are a woman and these will please you jean uttered a cry of admiration when she saw them and said they are indeed beautiful one million five hundred thousand franc which you hold in the palm of your hand said the queen monsieur was right said jean when he said that no one was worthy to wear these diamonds but your majesty however my majesty will not bear them we could not let them leave france without expressing our regret to your majesty it is a necklace which is now known all over europe and we wish to know definitively that your majesty really refused it before we parted with it my refusal has been made public said the queen and has been too much applauded for me to repent of it oh madame said Burmer, if the people found it admirable that your majesty preferred a ship of war to a necklace the nobility at least would not think it surprising if you bought the necklace after all do not speak of it any more said marie antoinette casting at the same time a longing look at the casket jean sighed ah you sigh countess in my place you would act differently i do not know madame have you looked enough oh no i could look for ever let her look gentlemen that takes nothing from the value unfortunately they are still worth one million five hundred thousand francs oh thought jean she is regretting it and she said on your neck madame they would make all women die with jealousy were they as beautiful as cleopatra or venus and approaching she clasped it round her neck oh your majesty is beautiful so the queen turned to the mirror it was really splendid everyone must have admired marie antoinette forgot herself for a time in admiration then seized with fear she tried to take it off it has touched your majesty's neck it ought not to belong to anyone else said Burmer. impossible said the queen firmly gentlemen 
I have amused myself with these jewels, to do more would be a fault. We will return tomorrow, said Burma. No, I must pay sooner or later, and besides, doubtless you want your money. You will get it soon. Yes, your majesty, said the merchant, a man of business again. Take the necklace back, said the queen. Put it away immediately. Your majesty forgets that such a thing is equal to money itself. And that in a hundred years it will be worth as much as it is now, said Jean. Give me one million five hundred thousand francs, said the queen, and we shall see. Oh, if I had them. Messieurs Burma and Bossange took as long as possible to put back the necklace, but the queen did not speak. At last they said, "'Your Majesty refuses them?' "'Yes, oh, yes!' And they quitted the room. Marie Antoinette remained sitting, looking rather gloomy and beating with her foot in an impatient manner. At last she said, "'Countess, it seems the King will not return. We must defer our supplication till another time.' Jean bowed respectfully. "'But I will not forget you.' added the queen. She is regretting and desiring, thought Jean as she left. And yet she is a queen. End of chapter 39. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 40 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Ambitions that wish to pass for two loves. When Jean returned to her pretty little house in the Faubourg, it was still early, so she took a pen and wrote a few rapid lines, enclosed them in a perfumed envelope, and rang the bell. "'Take this letter to Monseigneur the Cardinal de Rohan,' said she. In five minutes the man returned. "'Well,' said Madame de Lamotte impatiently, "'why are you not gone?' "'Just as I left the house, madame, his eminence came to the door. "'I told him I was about to go to his hotel with a letter from you. "'He read it and is now waiting to come in.' "'Let him enter,' said the countess. "'Jean had been thinking all the way home of the beautiful necklace "'and wishing it was hers. "'It would be a fortune in itself. "'The cardinal entered. "'He also was full of desires and ambitions, "'which he wished to hide under the mask of love.' "'Ah, dear Jean,' said he, "'you have really become so necessary to me "'that I have been gloomy all day, "'knowing you to be so far off. "'But you have returned from Versailles.' "'As you can see, Monseigneur.' "'And content?' "'Enchanted.' "'The Queen received you, then?' "'I was introduced immediately on my arrival.' "'You were fortunate, I suppose, from your triumphant air that she spoke to you.' "'I passed three hours in Her Majesty's cabinet.' Three hours! You are really an enchantress whom no one can resist. But perhaps you exaggerate. Three hours!' he repeated. "'How many things a clever woman like you might say in three hours?' "'Oh!' I assure you, Monseigneur, that I did not waste my time. 
i dare say that in the whole three hours you did not once think of me ungrateful man really cried the cardinal i did more than think of you i spoke of you spoke of me to whom asked the prelate in a voice from which all his power over himself could not banish some emotion to whom should it be but to the queen ha dear countess tell me about it i interest myself so much in all that concerns you that i should like to hear the most minute details jeanne smiled she knew what interested the cardinal as well as he did himself then she related to him all the circumstances which had so fortunately made her from a stranger almost the friend and confidant of the queen scarcely had she finished when the servant entered to announce supper jeanne invited the cardinal to accompany her he gave her his arm and they went in together during supper the cardinal continued to drink in long draughts of love and hope from the recitals which jeanne kept making to him from time to time he remarked also with surprise that instead of making herself sought like a woman that knows that you have need of her she had thrown off all her former pride and only seemed anxious to please him she did the honors of her table as if she had all her life mixed in the highest circles there was neither awkwardness nor embarrassment countess said he at length there are two women in you how so one of yesterday and another of today and which does your excellency prefer i do not know but at least the one of this evening is a circe a something irresistible and which you will not attempt to resist i hope prince as you are and the cardinal imprinted a long kiss on her hand end of chapter forty recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter Forty One of the Queen's Necklace by Alexander Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Faces under their masks. Two hours had elapsed, and the conversation still continued. The cardinal was now the slave, and Jeanne was triumphant. Two men often deceive each other as they shake hands, a man and a woman as they kiss, but here each only deceived the other because they wished to be deceived each had an end to gain and for that end intimacy was necessary the cardinal now did not demonstrate his impatience but always managed to bring back the conversation to versailles and to the honors which awaited the queen's new favorite she is generous said he and spares nothing towards those she loves she has the rare talent of giving a little to everyone and a great deal to a few you think then she is rich she makes resources with a word or a smile no minister except perhaps to go ever refused her anything well said madame de lamotte i have seen her poorer than you think what do you mean are those rich who are obliged to impose privations on themselves privations what do you mean dear countess i will tell you what i saw i saw the queen suffer 
do you know what a woman's desire is my dear prince no countess but i should like you to tell me well the queen has a desire which she cannot satisfy for what for a diamond necklace oh i know what you mean the diamonds of monsieur burma and bossange precisely that is an old story countess old or new it is a real vexation for a queen not to be able to buy what was intended for a simple favorite fifteen more days added to the life of louis the fifteenth and jean vaubernier would have had what marie antoinette cannot buy my dear countess you mistake the queen could have had it and she refused it the king offered them to her and he recounted the history of the ship of war well said she after all what does that prove that she did not want them it seems to me jean shrugged her shoulders you know women and courts and believe that the queen wanted to do a popular act and she has done it good said the cardinal that is how you believe in the royal virtues ha skeptic saint thomas was credulous compared to you skeptic or not i can assure you of one thing that the queen had no sooner refused it than she earnestly desired to have it you imagine all this my dear countess for if the queen has one quality more than another it is disinterestedness she does not care for gold or jewels and likes a simple flower as well as a diamond i do not know that i only know she wishes for this necklace prove it countess it is easy i saw the necklace and touched it where at versailles when the jewellers brought it for the last time to try and tempt the queen and it is beautiful marvellous i who am a woman think that one might lose sleep and appetite in wishing for it alas why have i not a vessel to give the king a vessel yes for in return he would give me the necklace and then you could eat and sleep in peace you laugh no really well i will tell you something that will astonish you i would not have the necklace so much the better countess for i could not give it to you neither you nor any one that is what the queen feels but i tell you that the king offered it to her and i tell you that women like best those presents that come from people from whom they are not forced to accept them i do not understand you well never mind and after all what does it matter to you since you cannot have it oh if i were king and you were queen i would force you to have it well 
without being king, oblige the queen to have it, and see if she is angry as you suppose she would be. The cardinal looked at her with wonder. "'You are sure,' said he, "'that you are not deceived, and that the queen wishes for it?' "'Intensely. Listen, dear prince, did you tell me, or where did I hear it, that you would like to be a minister?' "'You may have heard me say so, Countess.' "'Well, I will bet that the Queen would make that man a minister who would place the necklace on her toilet within a week.' "'Oh, Countess!' "'I say what I think. Would you rather I kept silent?' "'Certainly not.' "'However, it does not concern you, after all.' It is absurd to suppose that you would throw away a million and a half on a royal caprice. That would be paying too dearly for the portfolio which you ought to have for nothing. So think no more of what I have said. The cardinal continued silent and thoughtful. Huh, you despise me now, continued she. You think I judge the queen by myself. So I do. I thought she wanted these diamonds because she sighed as she looked at them, and because in her place I should have coveted them. "'You are an adorable woman, Countess. You have, by a wonderful combination, softness of mind and strength of heart. Sometimes you are so little of a woman that I am frightened at others, so charmingly so that I bless heaven and you for it. And now, we will talk of business no more. So be it, thought Jean, but I believe the bait has taken, nevertheless. Indeed, although the cardinal said, Speak of it no more. In a few minutes he asked, Does not Burma live somewhere in the Quai de la Ferraille, near the Pont Neuf? Yes, you are right. I saw the name on the door as I drove along. Jean was not mistaken. The fish had taken the hook, and the next morning the cardinal drove to Monsieur Burmer. He intended to preserve his incognito, but they knew him and called him Monseigneur directly. "'Well, gentlemen,' said he, "'if you know me, keep my secret from others. Monseigneur may rely upon us. What can we do for your eminence?' I came to buy the necklace which you showed Her Majesty. Really, we are in despair, but it is too late. How so? It is sold. Impossible, as you offered it only yesterday to the Queen. Who again refused it, so our other bargain held good. And with whom was this bargain? It is a secret, Monseigneur. Too many secrets, Monsieur Burma, said he, rising. But I should have thought that a French jeweler would prefer selling these beautiful stones in France. You prefer Portugal. Very well. Monseigneur knows that, cried the jeweler. Well, is that astonishing? No one knew it but the Queen. And if that were so said Monsieur de Rohan, without contradicting a supposition that flattered him. 
ah that would change matters why so sir may i speak freely certainly the queen wishes for the necklace you think so i am sure of it then why did she not buy it because she has already refused the king and she thought it would look capricious to buy it now but the king wished her to have it yes but he thanked her for refusing therefore i think she wishes to have it without seeming to buy it well you are wrong sir i am sorry for it monseigneur it would have been our only excuse for breaking our word to the portuguese ambassador the cardinal reflected for a moment then sir let us suppose that the queen wishes for your necklace oh in that case monseigneur we would break through anything that she should have it what is the price one million five hundred thousand franc how do you want payment the portuguese was to give one hundred thousand franc down and i was to take the necklace myself to lisbon where the balance was to be paid well the one hundred thousand franc down you shall have that is reasonable as for the rest your eminence wishes for time with such a guarantee we should not object only credit implies a loss the interest of our money must be considered well call it one million six hundred thousand franc and divide the time of payment into three periods making a year that would be a loss to us sir nonsense if i paid you the whole amount to-morrow you would hardly know what to do with it there are two of us monseigneur well you will receive five hundred thousand francs every four months that ought to satisfy you monseigneur forgets that these diamonds do not belong to us if they did we should be rich enough to wait they belong to a dozen different creditors we got some from hamburg some from naples one at buenos aires and one at moscow all these people wait for the sale of the necklace to be paid the profit that we make is all that will be ours and we have already had it two years on hand monsieur de rohan interrupted him after all said he i have not seen the necklace true monseigneur here it is it is really superb cried the cardinal it is a bargain yes monseigneur i must go to the ambassador and excuse myself i did not think there was a portuguese ambassador just now monsieur de souza arrived incognito to buy this necklace yes monseigneur oh poor souza i know him well said he laughing with whom am i to conclude the transaction asked monsieur burma with myself you will see no one else to-morrow i will bring thee one hundred thousand francs and will sign the agreement and as you are a man of secrets monsieur burma remember that you now possess an important one 
monseigneur i feel it and will merit your confidence and the queen's monsieur de rohan went away happy like all men who ruin themselves in a transport of passion the next day monsieur Burmer went to the hotel of the portuguese ambassador at the moment he knocked at the door monsieur beausire was going through some accounts with monsieur du cornome while don manuel was taking over some new plan with the valet his associate monsieur du cornome was charmed to find an ambassador so free from national prejudice as to have formed his whole establishment of frenchmen thus his conversation was full of praises of him the Sousas, you see replied beausire are not of the old school of portuguese they are great travellers very rich who may be kings if they liked and they do not why should they with a certain number of millions and the name of a prince one is better than a king ah portugal will soon become great with such men at its head but when is the presentation to take place it is most anxiously looked for the people around begin to talk of it and to collect about the doors of the hotel as though they were of glass and they could see through do you mean the people of the neighborhood asked beausire and uh, others for the mission of monsieur de souza being a secret one you may be sure the police would soon interest themselves about it and look continued ducarneau leading beausire to the window do you see that man in the brown surtout how he looks at the house yes he does indeed who do you take him to be probably a spy of monsieur de crosny however between ourselves monsieur de crosny is not equal to monsieur sartine did you know him no ah he would have found out all about you long ago in spite of all your precautions a bell rang his excellency rings said beausire who was beginning to feel embarrassed by the conversation and opening the door quickly he nearly knocked down two of the clerks who were listening end of chapter forty one recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter Forty Two of the Queen's Necklace by Alexander Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In which Monsieur de Cournot understands nothing of what is passing. Don Manuel was less yellow than usual, that is to say, he was more red. He had just been having a fierce altercation with his valet, and they were still disputing when Beausire entered. Come, Monsieur Beausire, and set us right said the valet about what this one hundred thousand francs it is the property of the association is it not certainly ah monsieur beausire agrees with me wait said don manuel well then continued the valet the chest ought not to be kept close to the ambassador's room why not asked beausire monsieur manuel ought to give us each a key to it not so said manuel do you suspect me of wishing to rob the association i may equally suspect you when you ask for a key but said the valet we have all equal rights really 
monsieur if you wish to make us all equal we ought to have played the ambassador in turn it would have been less plausible in the eyes of the public but it would have satisfied you and besides said beausire monsieur manuel has the incontestable privilege of the inventor oh replied the valet the thing once started there are no more privileges i do not speak for myself only all our comrades think the same they are wrong said both manuel and beausire i was wrong myself to take the opinion of monsieur beausire of course the secretary supports the ambassador monsieur replied beausire you are a knave whose ears i would slit if it had not already been done too often you insult me by saying that i have an understanding with manuel and me also said manuel and i demand satisfaction added beausire oh i am no fighter so i see said beausire seizing hold of him help help cried the valet attacked at once by both of them but just then they heard a bell ring leave him and let him open the door said manuel our comrades shall hear all this replied the valet tell them what you please we will answer for our conduct monsieur Bomer cried the porter from below well we shall have no more contests about the one hundred thousand franc said manuel for they will disappear with monsieur Burmer. monsieur Burmer entered followed by bossange both looked humble and embarrassed Burma began and explained that political reasons would prevent their fulfilling their contract manuel cried out angrily beausire looked fierce manuel said that the bargain was completed and the money ready Burma persisted manuel always through beausire replied that his government had been apprised of the conclusion of the bargain and that it was an insult to his queen to break it off monsieur Burma was very sorry but it was impossible to act otherwise beausire and manuel's name refused to accept the retraction and abused monsieur Burma as a man without faith and ended by saying you have found someone to pay more for it the jewellers colored beausire saw that he was right and feigned to consult his ambassador well said he at length if another will give you more for your diamonds we would do the same rather than have this affront offered to our queen will you take fifty thousand francs more Burma shook his head one hundred thousand or even one hundred and fifty thousand continued beausire willing to offer anything rather than lose the booty the jewellers looked dazzled for a moment consulted together and then said no monsieur it is useless to tempt us a will more powerful than our own compels us to decline you understand no doubt that it is not we who refuse we only obey the orders of one greater than any of us beausire and manuel 
saw that it was useless to say more, and tried to look and speak indifferently on the matter. Meanwhile the valet had been listening attentively, and just then, making an unlucky movement, stumbled against the door. Beausire ran to the antechamber. "'What on earth are you about?' cried he. "'Monsieur, I bring the morning dispatches.' "'Good,' said Beausire, taking them from him. "'Now go!' They were letters from Portugal, generally very insignificant, but which, passing through their hands before going to Du Corneau, often gave them useful information about the affairs of the embassy. The jewellers, hearing the word dispatches, rose to leave like men who had received their congé. "'Well,' said Manuel, when they were gone, "'we are completely beaten. Only one hundred thousand francs. A poor spoil. We shall have but eight thousand each.' "'It is not worth the trouble, but it might be fifty thousand each.' "'Good.' replied manuel but the valet will never leave us now he knows the affair has failed oh i know how we will manage him he will return immediately and claim his share and that of his comrades and we shall have the whole house in our hands well i will call him first to a secret conference then leave me to act i think i understand said manuel neither however would leave his friend alone with the chest while he went to call him manuel said that his dignity as ambassador prevented him from taking such a step you are not ambassador to him said beausire however i will call through the window the valet who was just beginning a conversation with the porter hearing himself called came up beausire said to him with a smiling air "'I suppose you were telling this business to the porter?' "'Oh, no.' "'Are you sure?' "'I swear.' "'For if you were, you were committing a great folly, and have lost a great deal of money.' "'How so?' "'Why, at present, only we three know the secret, and could divide the one hundred thousand francs between us as they all now think we have given it to Monsieur Burmer. Morbleu, cried the valet, it is true, thirty-three thousand three hundred francs each. Then you accept? I should think so. I said you were a rogue, said Beausire in a thundering voice. Come, Don Manuel, help me to seize this man and give him up to our associates pardon pardon cried the unfortunate i did but jest shut him up until we can devise his punishment the man began to cry out take care said beausire that du corneau does not hear us if you do not leave me alone said the valet i will denounce you all and i will strangle you said don manuel trying to push him into a neighboring closet "'Send away to Corneau somewhere, Beausire, while I finish this fellow.' When he had locked him up, he returned to the room. Beausire was not there. Don Manuel felt tempted. He was alone, and Beausire might be some little time. 
He could open the chest, take out all the banknotes, and be off in two minutes. He ran to the room where it was. The door was locked. Ah, thought he, Beausire distrusted me and locked the door before he went. He forced back the lock with his sword and then uttered a terrible cry. The chest was opened and empty. Beausire had got, as we know, a second key. He had forestalled Manuel. Manuel ran down like a madman. The porter was singing at the door. He asked if Beausire had passed. Yes, some ten minutes ago. Manuel became furious, summoned them all, and ran to release the unfortunate valet. But when he told his story, Manuel was accused of being an accomplice of Beausire, and they all turned against him. Monsieur Ducourneau felt ready to faint when he entered and saw the men preparing to hang Monsieur de Souza. "'Hang Monsieur de Souza!' cried he. "'It is high treason!' At last they threw him into a cellar, fearing his cries would arouse the neighborhood. At that moment loud knocks at the door disturbed them. They looked at each other in dismay. The knocks were repeated, and someone cried— open in the name of the portuguese ambassador on hearing this each made his escape in terror as best he could scrambling over walls and roofs the true ambassador could only enter by the help of the police they found and arrested monsieur du corneau who slept that night in the chatelet thus ended the adventure of the sham embassy from portugal end of chapter forty two recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter forty three of the Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Illusions and Realities Beausire, on leaving the house, ran as fast as possible down the Rue Coquillière, then into the Rue Saint Honore, and took everywhere the most intricate and improbable turnings he could think of, and continued this until he became quite exhausted. Then, Thinking himself tolerably safe, he sat down in the corn market, on a sack, to recover his breath. Ah! Oh, thought he, now I have made my fortune. I will be an honest man for the future, and I will make Oliva an honest woman. She is beautiful, and she will not mind leading a retired life with me in some province where we shall live like lords. She is very good. She has but two faults, idleness and pride, and as I shall satisfy her on both these points, she will be perfect. He then began to reflect on what he should do next. They would seek him, of course, and most likely divide into different parties, and some would probably go first to his own house. Here lay his great difficulty, for there they would find Oliva, and they might ill-treat her. They might even take her as a hostage— speculating on his love for her what should he do love carried the day he ran off again like lightning took a coach and drove to the pont neuf he then looked cautiously down the rue dauphine to reconnoitre and he saw two men who seemed also looking anxiously down the street he thought they were police spies but that was nothing uncommon in that part of the town so bending his back and walking lamely for disguise he went on till he nearly reached his house. Suddenly he thought he saw the coat of a gendarme in the courtyard. 
Then he saw one at the window of Oliver's room. He felt ready to drop, but he thought his best plan was to walk quietly on. He had that courage and passed the house. Heavens, what a sight! The yard was full of soldiers, and among them a police commissioner. Beausire's rapid glance showed him what he thought, disappointed faces. He thought that Monsieur de Crosny had somehow begun to suspect him, and sending to take him had found only Oliva. "'I cannot help her now,' thought he. "'I should only lose my money and destroy us both. No, let me place that in safety, and then I will see what can be done.' He therefore ran off again, taking his way almost mechanically toward the Luxembourg. But as he turned the corner of the Rue Saint-Germain, he was almost knocked down by a handsome carriage, which was driving toward the Rue Dauphine, and raising his head to swear at the coachman, he thought he saw Oliva inside, talking with much animation to a handsome man who sat by her. He gave a cry of surprise and would have run after it, but he could not again encounter the Rue Dauphine. He felt bewildered, for he had before settled that Oliva had been arrested in her own house, and he fancied his brain must be turning when he believed he saw her in the carriage. But he started off again and took refuge in a small cabaret at the Luxembourg, where the hostess was an old friend. There he gradually began to recover again his courage and hope. He thought the police would not find him and that his money was safe. He remembered also that Oliva had committed no crime, and that the time was past when people were kept prisoners for nothing. He also thought that his money would soon obtain her release, even if she were sent to prison, and he would then set off with her for Switzerland. Such were his dreams and projects as he sat sipping his wine. End of chapter 43 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter forty four of the Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Oliva begins to ask what they want of her. If Monsieur Beausire had trusted to his eyesight, which was excellent, instead of trusting his imagination, he would have spared himself much regret and many mistakes. It was, in fact, Oliva who sat in the carriage by the side of a man whom he would also have recognized if he had looked a little longer. She had gone that morning as usual to take a walk in the gardens of the Luxembourg, where she had met the strange friend whose acquaintance she had made the day of the ball at the opera. It was just as she was about to return that he appeared before her and said, "'Where are you going?' "'Home, monsieur.' "'Just what the people want who are there waiting for you.' "'Waiting for me?' No one is there for me. Oh, yes, a dozen visitors at least. A whole regiment, perhaps, <laughs> said Oliva, laughing. Perhaps, had it been possible to send a whole regiment, they would have done so. You astonish me. You would be far more astonished if I let you go. Why? Because you would be arrested. I? Arrested? Assuredly. The twelve gentlemen who wait for you are sent by Monsieur de Crosny. Oliva trembled. Some people are always fearful on certain points. But she said, I have done nothing. 
why should they arrest me? For some intrigue, perhaps? I have none. But you have had. Oh, perhaps. Well, perhaps they are wrong to wish to arrest you, but the fact is that they do desire to do so. Will you still go home? You deceive me, said Oliver. If you know anything, tell me at once. Is it not Beausire they want? Perhaps he may have a conscience less clear than yours. Poor fellow! Pity him if you like. But if he is taken, there is no need for you to be taken too. What interest have you in protecting me? asked she. It is not natural for a man like you. I would not lose time if I were you. They are very likely to seek you here, finding you do not return. How should they know I am here? Are you not always here? My carriage is close by, if you will come with me. But I see you doubt still. Yes. Well, we will commit an imprudence to convince you. We will drive past your house, and when you have seen these gentlemen there, I think you will better appreciate my good offices. He led her to the carriage, and drove to the Rue Dauphine, at the corner of which they passed Beausire. Had Oliver seen him, doubtless she would have abandoned everything to fly with him and share his fate. Whatever it might be, the Cogliostro, who did see him, took care to engage her attention, by showing her the crowd which was already in sight and which was waiting to see what the police would do. When Oliva could distinguish the soldiers who filled her house, she threw herself into the arms of her protector in despair. "'Save me! Save me!' she cried. He pressed her hand. "'I promise you.' "'But they will find me out anywhere.' "'Not where I shall take you. They will not seek you at my house.' "'Oh!' cried she, frightened. "'Am I to go home with you?' "'You are foolish,' said he. "'I am not your lover, and do not wish to become so. "'If you prefer a prison, you are free to choose.' "'No,' replied she. "'I trust myself to you. "'Take me where you please.' "'He conducted her to the Rue Neuve-Saint-Gilles, into a small room on the second floor. "'How triste,' said she. "'Here, without liberty, and without even a garden to walk in.' "'You are right,' said he. "'Besides, my people would see you here at last.' "'And would betray me, perhaps?' "'No fear of that. But I will look out for another abode for you.' I do not mean you to remain here. Oliva was consoled. Besides, she found amusing books and easy chairs, and he left her, saying, If you want me, ring. I will come directly if I am at home. Ha! Ah, cried she. Get me some news of Beausire. Before everything. Then, as he went down, he said to himself, it will be a profanation to lodge her in that house in the Rue St. Cloud. But it is important that no one should see her, and 
spare no one will. So I will extinguish the last spark of my old light. End of chapter 44 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 45 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Deserted House When Cogliostro arrived at the deserted house in the Rue Saint-Cloud, with which our readers are already acquainted, it was getting dark, and but few people were to be seen in the streets. Cogliostro drew a key from his pocket— and applied it to the lock, but the door was swollen with the damp, and stiff with age, and it required all his strength to open it. The courtyard was overgrown with moss, the steps crumbling away, all looked desolate and deserted. He entered the hall, and lighted a lamp which he had brought with him. He felt a strange agitation as he approached the door which he had so often entered to visit Lorenza. A slight noise made his heart beat quickly. He turned and saw an adder gliding down the staircase. It disappeared in a hole near the bottom. He entered the room. It was empty, but in the grate still lay some ashes, the remains of the furniture which had adorned it, and which he had burned there. Among it several pieces of gold and silver still sparkled. As he turned he saw something glittering on the floor. He picked it up. It was one of those silver arrows with which the Italian women were in the habit of confining their hair. He pressed it to his lips, and a tear stood in his eyes as he murmured, Lorenza. It was but for a moment. Then he opened the window and threw it out, saying to himself, Adieu, this last souvenir which would soften me. This house is about to be profaned. Another woman will ascend the staircase, and perhaps even into this room, where Lorenzo's last sigh still vibrates. But to serve my end, the sacrifice shall be made. I must, however, have some alterations made. He then wrote on his tablets the following words, To Monsieur Lenoir, my architect, Clean out the court and vestibule. Restore the coach-house and stable, and demolish the interior of the pavilion. To be done in eight days. Now, let us see, said he to himself, if we can perfectly distinguish the window of the countess. It is infallible, said he after looking out. The women must see each other. The next day fifty workmen had invaded the house, and commenced the projected alterations, which were completed within the given time. Some of the passers-by saw a large rat hung up by the tail. End of chapter 45 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia